Well, I am very excited about this series in the book of Jonah. I always get excited when I start a new sermon series. I have never preached ever any sermons from the book of Jonah, and I'm eager to do so whenever we start a new series. And when it's a, well, Jonah is not an obscure book. We all know the story of Jonah, uh, but it's, it's not always that easy to find it. Jonah is tucked away in our Bibles, so if, uh, if, if you're following along and I suggest that you do so. Go to the middle and then turn right, and then you have to go through the major prophets, guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you get to the minor prophets, starting with Hosea, followed by Joel, and then you're going to hit Amos, and the very next one is going to be Jonah. If you're using a pew Bible, then you're going to be on page 753. Make it easy for you. 753, and that'll put you in the book of Jonah. I'm only going to read the first six verses this morning. There's enough in the first six verses, I think, for us to think about together. So here we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And we'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I heard a story once about a young boy came up to his pastor and said, how come after every time you read the Bible you say, this is the word of the Lord, Uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And the pastor said, that's why. (laughs) That's exactly why. Because you can recite that, because that's been pressed into your heart. So that you carry that with you all of your life. So that you know that this is not a normal book. This is the book that God wrote. And so that you know that this word will endure. That things of this earth are temporary, but God's word endures. And so that's why I say that as well. We all need to be reminded that here we have an anchor. Here we have something that lasts and endures. So... You know the story of Jonah. I, 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 I'd be surprised, it's possible, but I'd be surprised if there was anyone who could hear my voice right now who does not know the story of Jonah. Uh, our children obviously know it very, very well. They told that story. They, they knew the details. They knew the theology behind it. Our kids know that story. We know the story as well. It's the story of a disobedient prophet running away from God, It's the story of a loving but fearful 
hand of God extended first through a storm and then through a great fish. It's a story of the anger of Jonah at the broadness of God's grace. It's a fantastic story. Children love it. Adults love it. Adults, being adults, though, sometimes wonder whether or not it really happened. Is it plausible that a man could survive in a fish for three days? Uh, you know, I think that question misses the point. Um, first of all, if you, believe, if you believe in the resurrection of the Son of God, then it's not that hard to believe that a human could be swallowed by a fish, right? But, but regardless, I think the question of did it really happen misses the point. I think the more important question is this. Not is it plausible that a man could be in a fish for three days and then spit out and survive. The more important question is, is it plausible that a holy and just God would extend grace to people who have declared themselves his enemies? Is that plausible? And the answer that the book of Jonah gives us is, yes, it is. Not only is that plausible, but God does that all the time. (laughs) He extends his grace to people who have declared themselves his enemies. He does it all the time. But I'm getting way ahead of myself, way ahead of myself. We need to start this series by meeting the major characters. And just as one of our young people pointed out this morning, God is the main character. This story starts with God. God is the main character of the whole Bible. God is the main character of the story of Jonah. And the spotlight in Jonah is on God's sovereignty and mercy, both. God's sovereign over all things. You see his fingerprints all over this story. And he is also merciful. He is sovereign and merciful. Jonah himself is the main human character in the story. Jonah was a prophet of God. The book of Jonah is not the only place in the Bible that Jonah gets mentioned. I wonder if if I, if I took a survey, how many people knew that? That Jonah is not only mentioned just in the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah shows up in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. We read this, Jeroboam, this is 2, King, 2 Kings chapter 14, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamat, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel which he spoke, that's the Lord, spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's our Jonah. Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. And so he saved them. By the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Okay? Things were bad for Israel. Things were very bad. It says things were very bitter for Israel. They were under attack from the Assyrians. And through the mouth of the prophet Jonah, God said, Look, I know things are bad right now, but I'm going to save you. That was Jonah's message to Israel from God. Okay? That was during a very violent time in the history of Israel. That was a time when the northern kingdom of Israel, by now 
uh, the, the kingdoms are divided. We don't need to go into that right now, but there's a northern kingdom in Israel. There's a southern kingdom. Jonah's a northern kingdom guy. Um, the northern kingdom is at war with its enemies. And Jonah is a faithful prophet during that time, and he is conveying the word of the Lord to the people of God, and he is indicating to the people of God, don't worry, I know things are bad, but you will triumph over your enemies because the Lord is with you, the Lord is for you. Now that provides us with an important historical context because it helps us to explain why Jonah thinks the people of Nineveh are his enemy. He thinks that because they are his enemy. That explains why Jonah is so confused when he is commanded to go there and preach a message of repentance to them. All right, well, who are these people of Nineveh? Well, to put it bluntly, Nineveh was the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria, and the Assyrians were the most violent, most ruthless, most feared, most hated people in the world at the time. So in the course of, of, of my studies and preparation for this series, I just discovered a long, long list of hor- horrific things that the Assyrians did. And not only did they do these things, but they were proud of them. You can find records of the evil and cruel things that the Assyrians did to their enemies, records carved on the walls of their buildings, Right, depicted graphically what they did to their enemies as a way of, of boasting and celebrating their cruelty. Look at us. Look what we do. Look at how powerful we are. Fear us. I'll, I'll give you just one example. This example has stuck in my own mind. I've kind of carried it with me and I can't get rid of it. I'm going to pass it on to you. Um, the, 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 the Assyrians were known, they had this pattern of taking prisoners of war and they would take them And they would cut off both their legs and they would cut off their left arm and leave their right arm. They left the right arm so that they could shake the man's hand and look him in the eye as he died. As an expression of mockery. Listen, that's not even close to the worst thing I read about what they do, but I think that's sufficient. I don't need to say more. That practice alone will tell you all I need to tell you about their level of cruelty and why they were so hated by all the other nations. Okay, so those are the major players. We've got God and his sovereignty and mercy. We've got Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, and we've got Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. Okay, now this is a book that is full of ironies full of ironies. Okay, it begins with an irony right in the first few verses. Verse 2, God says to Jonah, arise and go. Verse 3, we read that Jonah's response is, he arose and went. The problem is that Jonah went in the opposite direction. Tarshish, if you want to picture a map, Tarshish was way out um, west, like modern-day Spain. If you can picture Spain on a map, that's kind of way out where Tarshish was. So, so Jonah was supposed to arise and go east, but instead he arose and went west. He was supposed to, his path was supposed to take him over land to Tarshish. Instead, he hopped on a ship and went by sea. He was supposed to go to the heart of the great city. That's what the, the Bible refers to Nineveh as a great city. Instead, he headed for the middle of nowhere. 
at the end of the known world. In every conceivable way, Jonah did the opposite of what God commanded him, and that is the essence of sin. Disobeying God's clear commands and running away from God. That is an old story. That story began way back in the Garden of Eden. That story has been repeated throughout history all the way up to my life and your life today. In the garden, right, same story, right? God gives clear commands. Adam and Eve disobey those commands. The next time God shows up in the garden, they run away from him and hide. In the case of Jonah, God gives a clear command. Jonah disobeys that command. In an effort to get away from God, Jonah runs away in the opposite direction. And in the case of my own life, God has issued clear and unambiguous commands. He's written them in his word. He's put them on my heart. And I have, at times, willfully broken those commands. And I've run in the opposite direction from God in an effort to get away from him. Sin is running away from God. But grace is God chasing after us. Okay, that's one way to summarize the book of Jonah. Running and chasing. Jonah runs away from God. That's sin. God chases him down. That's grace. The Assyrians, as a nation, are running away from God. That's sin. But God chases them down. That's grace. I have run away from God. That's sin. But he has chased me down. That's grace. And why did Jonah run away from God? Well, because he did not like the command that God gave him. And why did Jonah not like the command that God gave him? Well, because Jonah didn't understand the command that God gave him. See, we want commands from God that conform to our expectations, that make sense to our human intellect, that, that, that conform to our sense of justice. Right? We want those kind of commands. And when God's commands don't conform to those expectations, we tend to rebel and resist those commands. In Jonah's case, let's just call it what it is. Jonah is a racist. Okay? Jonah's a racist. You want me to go where? To minister to the people of Nineveh? To preach a message of repentance to the Assyrians? No way. God, they're our enemies. They're the ones that you told me that you were going to save us from. God, don't you know that we're better than them? Have you forgotten that you love us more than you love them? Don't you know that even though we Israelites are not perfect, we're way more deserving of grace than they are? I'm not going to go preach to them. We're your people, not them. And they can rot in hell for all I care. That's racism. And racism is always rooted in the evil and arrogant assumption that we are inherently better than them, right? That's what racism is. We're better than them. And what we're going to find out as we walk through Jonah together is that we are all 
sometimes guilty of this in one way or another. Okay? Because it is a very small step from I hate racism to I hate racists. And as soon as you make that step, you are guilty of the very thing that you hate. Right? Racism is evil. We should all raise our voices against it. Racists are human beings created in the image of God, and they are no better or worse than you and I. Jonah should have been morally outraged at the atrocities committed by the Assyrians, and Jonah should have been heartbroken in his desire to see them come to a place of repentance and restoration. Because ultimately, those Assyrians were no different than him, or than you, or than I. And that's the basic message of the book of Jonah, and it's a message that continues to be relevant today. All right, so let's not be too quick to judge Jonah. God's command here, if you want to like put it in a modern context, a modern equivalent, God's command to Jonah is the functional equivalent of if God came to a rabbi in the year 1941 and said, look, I want you to go to Germany and I want you to preach a message of repentance to the Nazis. That, that's the functional equivalent of what he's just told Jonah to do. And our moral instinct, my moral instinct, tells me, wait a minute, the Nazis don't deserve to hear that message. They deserve justice. They deserve punishment. They don't deserve a chance to repent. And not only that, but rabbis, rabbis were supposed to be fleeing Germany in 1941, not going to Germany. Sending a rabbi to Germany in 1941 was basically a death sentence. Sending a prophet of the Lord to Assyria also felt like a death sentence to Jonah. What? You want me to go there? What? Well, you know I'm never going to return from that, right? So Jonah didn't understand the command. Right? What? You, why? They, they don't... What, what they deserve is to be obliterated, God. You just want to send me there so that I can die? From, from Jonah's human perspective, he could not make sense of the command. He couldn't make sense of it. And therefore, he didn't go. He didn't go to Nineveh. He knew better than God. So he didn't go to Nineveh. He went in the opposite direction, which was a perfectly rational decision from a human perspective, right? But it was a perfectly rebellious decision from a divine perspective. And I think we can all understand why he did it. I think we can all empathize with him. But it was an expression of rebellion against the holy God to choose to do that, to act as if he knew better than God. And I think that we too sometimes have a hard time of making sense of the commands that God gives us. And because we don't understand, we don't want to obey. That makes me think of, there's an illustration by the philosopher Alvin Plantinga. Um, he, I, I, I've always found this illustration helpful for a lot of making sense of a lot of different things. But um, he, what he said is, imagine that you have a small tent and imagine that if you, you, you look inside your tent and you, you're looking to see if there's a St. Bernard in there. If you look in your tent and you don't see a St. Bernard, it is reasonable to con conclude that there is no St. Bernard in your tent. 
Right? There's nowhere that a St. Bernard is going to hide in your tent where you don't see it. So if you don't see it, there's not one there. But imagine that you look in your tent to see if there are any no in there. no I don't know if you have no here. I don't hear about them here. But no are these, they're a thing. They're this tiny little insect. You can't see them. But they bite. They have a bite way out of proportion to their size. They're not actually, that's not their scientific name. I looked up the scientific name, but I couldn't pronounce it, so I didn't write it down. But uh, they're a thing. They're a real thing. But uh, you can't see them. So if you look into your tent, looking for no seams, and you don't see any, it is not reasonable to conclude that they're not there. Because, after all, no one can see them. Many people, this is, this is where Alvin Plantica goes with this, many people look for the reasons for God's commands as if they were St. Bernard's in a tent, assuming that his reasons for his commands should be obvious and accessible to our human minds. But why should that be the case? We're not God. He's God. And perhaps his reasons for the commands that he issues are more like noceums. They're really there, but from our perspective, we can't see them. In that case, our job is not to question God's goodness. Our job is not to question God's wisdom. Our job is to obey. Well, Jonah couldn't see the noceums of God's command to go to Nineveh, and so Jonah ran. But God chased That's grace. Jonah ran, but God chased. God chased. God chased by sending a storm. The verb there that's used for God sending that storm is hurled. God hurled a great wind at Jonah. That verb is often used in the Bible to refer to like if a warrior hurls a spear. Same word. God hurled a storm at Jonah in order to stop him in his tracks. Now, that is both comforting and terrifying, is it not? Right? The, 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 the way that God chases us down and brings us back close to him is often through hurling storms at us, either literally or metaphorically. Sin brings storms into our lives, and God often uses those storms to draw us near to him. Now, I want to clarify what I just said to make sure that no one is misunderstanding me. Sin always does damage. Sin always causes storms. Sin always causes pain. But, hear this, not all pain is a result of sin. Sin always causes pain, but not all pain is a result of sin. That's a very important difference, right? If you're experiencing a painful season in life, whether that's illness or loss or trauma or whatever, that does not necessarily mean that you have sinned in order to cause that, okay? God sometimes allows us to face hard circumstances that have nothing at all to do with anything that we've done. Just because you're in a hard place does not mean that you have sinned. But, Sin will always put you in a hard place. Okay? Sin always does damage to ourselves and to others. But oftentimes, God uses those storms to bring us back to him. God God hurled a storm at Jonah not to destroy him, not to drive him farther away, 
but to bring him back. Here's an illustration that I thought of. I have a friend back home who was, uh, he was, he was saved, his life was saved by another man punching him in the stomach hard. Uh, So there's obviously a story there. I'll tell it. My friend was scuba diving, and uh, his oxygen tank started to malfunction when he was way down deep. I I, I actually think what happened is the mouthpiece uh, came out, and, and then he couldn't, he couldn't get it back in, and he panicked. He just freaked out, and he, he just started to, to go straight up to the to surface, thinking that that was, that was the place of safety. Just get up. I got to breathe. I'm a human being. I need to breathe. I'm down below the water. I got to get up. Just panic. As you probably know, if you surface too quickly, what happens is the nitrogen gas in your body begins to form small bubbles, and, and it can result in death pretty quickly. Well, the diving instructor who was down with him uh, saw what was happening and immediately swam over and just, just punched my friend right in the stomach extremely hard, causing him to expel all the oxygen out of his lungs, stopping him from surfacing too quickly. And then the instructor brought my friend up at a controlled and safe rate. It was the punch that saved my friend's life. Sometimes, God administers those types of life-saving punches to us. And you know what? They hurt. It hurts to be punched in the stomach. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. Sometimes it's embarrassing. But ultimately, those punches can be restorative and life-saving if we let them. In Jonah's case, and, and we'll, we'll see as we keep going, uh, it'll take more than just a storm. The storm is the initial punch, right, to get his attention. It is, it is the first act of a sovereign and loving God who is chasing down someone who's running after him. It is running away from him, I should say. Now, I just want to notice the irony, another irony in the story of what happens next, and then we'll wrap it up, and then, Lord willing, we'll pick it up here next week, and next week we'll tie in what's happening to Thanksgiving. Next week is our Thanksgiving service. So Jonah is disobeying the command of God. Jonah is actively fleeing the presence of God, in part because he's racist and he thinks the Hebrews are better than everybody else, in part because he doesn't want to go and tell the pagans about God. He doesn't want to. He'd rather stay with his people. He's a local boy. He's a nationalist. He wants to preach to the people of God. He doesn't want to preach to pagans. So he hops on a boat and he heads in the opposite direction. Now, here he is in the middle of a storm, surrounded by pagans. Surrounded by pagans who are waking him and asking him to call on his God in order to save them. Right? So he ends up doing the very thing he was running away from. God, I don't want to tell pagans about you. Here he is, surrounded by pagans, and they're saying, talk to your God for us. God has a way of accomplishing his will one way or another. All right, well, let's close our time this morning with a simple point of application. It's very simple. It's very obvious, but we need to be reminded of it. Here it is. When God issues a command, we should obey. That's the application. When God issues a command, we should obey. That's obvious. It's obvious, but it's not easy. Right? There's a lot of, a lot of things fit that description in the Bible. Obvious, but not easy. 
It's not easy. If the command is difficult, or if the command is confusing, or if the command is dangerous, or if the command makes us uncomfortable, or if the command goes against what we wanted God to say, then it's hard. It's hard to obey. If God asks us to do something we wouldn't have chosen to do on our own, it's hard. If God issues a command to us and we can't see the reasons why he's issuing the command, it's hard. And under those circumstances, we should run towards God in obedience rather than away from God in rebellion. Lord, I don't know why you command me to do this, but I'm going to trust you even though I don't see it right now. Who does that sound like? That's Abraham, right? I don't have time to tell the story of Abraham right now. You can just fill it in yourself. That's exactly what happened with Abraham, right? God, I don't know why you commanded me to do this. seems ridiculous to me. Not, not just ridiculous. It seems awful to me. But you're God and I'm not, so I'm going to obey. Right? Abraham, opposite of Jonah. This is why I often counsel people to pay special attention to the Bible, the parts of the Bible that you don't like. Pay special attention to the parts of the Bible that you don't naturally agree with. Those are the parts you should focus on. It's generally pretty easy to obey the parts of the Bible that we like and that we agree with, right? Anyone can obey commands that they would have done anyways, right? You can tell me to do this or not, but I'm going to do it because I want to undo It's easy to obey the parts that don't challenge us and that don't confront us. And there are lots of parts like that, and we do need to obey those parts. But it's important for us to spend time with the parts that make us uncomfortable and that we don't fully understand. Those passages give us a special opportunity to die to self and to submit to the divine authority of our loving, sovereign, storm-hurling God. For me, when I think of that, I think of passages about radical generosity, things that God commanded through Christ to me about radical generosity. That makes me uncomfortable because he had a lot to say about it. Or I think of commands from God through Christ to me about forgiveness, about loving my enemies, about turning the other cheek when I'm wronged. Those passages make me uncomfortable. Maybe for you it's something else. Maybe for you those parts are easy. Maybe for you, there are other parts in the Bible that you read that and you say, whoa, that? No, not that. Well, we're not supposed to leap over those parts. We're supposed to linger there, sit with that, feel the weight of it, and die to self that we might live to Christ. I close with with one final example. This past week, I don't know, maybe some of you know, probably so, this past week, we, we lost a spiritual giant. He went home to be with the Lord. His wife went home a couple years ago. Now he's home. Uh, he's known uh, as Brother Andrew. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he died last Tuesday. Brother Andrew is a man who lived a life the opposite of the way that Jonah lived, at least in the early part of Jonah. Brother Andrew was born in the year 1928. He grew up in Holland. Uh, he grew up and he endured the German occupation during World War II in Holland. I know that description fits some people in our congregation. In response to that, he, fe- he, w- he felt like the Lord was, was leading him, after, after World War II, w- w- was leading him to go to Poland and to smuggle in a suitcase full of illegal Christian material, Bible, Bibles and things like that. 
It, at that time, after World War II, you weren't allowed to do that. That was illegal. But he felt the Lord telling him, no, 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 you, this is, this is my mission for you. You do this. You bring those Bibles to those people in Poland. And when, when Brother Andrew went there, what he discovered was that the churches that were now locked behind the Iron Curtain were isolated on their own, not, not able to access the literature, the teaching, the fellowship that they needed. And so he decided right then and there he would devote the rest of his life to serving the persecuted church. That he would bring the word of God to the people of God wherever they were and especially bring it to places where God's word was not allowed. And ultimately that led him to put his life on the line many, many times over and over and over again. And it, caught, it, it led him to form the ministry that became known as Open Doors, which I know many people here know and support. His, uh, in 1957, he's, he's crossing the border into Yugoslavia and Eastern, Eastern Europe. And the, the, uh, it's a vivid picture. He's in a bright blue Volkswagen be Beetle, 1957. The Beetle is just stuffed with illegal Bibles. Right? All, the, all the border guards would have to do is just take a look, and they would find them, right? And he, his commitment is, I'm not going to lie to them. If they ask me, I'm going to tell them. Because for him, for his conscience, he felt like he couldn't, God wouldn't allow him to lie about what he was doing. That wouldn't honor the Lord. That's what he concluded. And so there he is on the border with, the, with a VW Beetle, packed full of Bibles, illegally trying to cross in. It's a very memorable scene, and it's told in his autobiography, God's Smuggler. If you haven't read that book, I would encourage you to read it. I've read it twice, and both times it was life-changing. God's smuggler. His, uh, his smuggling, that, that trip went, as you can imagine, that trip went well. They didn't ask. He didn't have to tell. He was, they didn't even look, and he was able to cross the border. The, the apex of Brother Andrew's Bible smuggling came in June of 1981. In June of 1981, the Open Doors crew, they, they, they had this custom-built barge, this ship that was custom built to smuggle literature into closed countries, and it, in the middle of the night, June 1981, it, it, it drifted up to the coastline of China under cover of darkness, and they floated that night one million Bibles into China. It was in 232 separate packages that got slowly passed to a silent army of waiting Chinese Christians who received that night one million Bibles and then proceeded to disperse them to Christians throughout the country of China. Brother Andrew was told, listen, the borders of China are closed and you'll never get that many Bibles into China. You know, maybe bring a few in a suitcase, but a million, are you kidding me? And he responded, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ knows no borders. The borders aren't closed if God opens them. My God will find a way to get his message to his people, and I'd be honored if he'd be willing to use me to do that. And he was told, well, you know what? You'll be caught and you'll be killed if you try to do this. And he responded, listen, I leave the, that's a detail that I leave in the hands of the Lord. Right? My job is to obey and he can choose to preserve me and protect me, or he can choose to let me die as he sees fit. But my job is to obey. That's the opposite of what Jonah did. May you and I have similar courage to walk the path of faithful obedience, no matter what commands our king issues. 
Let's pray together. Dear God, you are our king, and we are your subjects. You are the command giver, and we are the command receivers. And so we don't, we don't stand in judgment of Jonah. We recognize that that was an awfully hard command that you gave him. In fact, it's hard to imagine exactly uh, what all uh, was entailed in that issue when you said, Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh. So we recognize that. And we're not here today to say we're better than him or better than anyone else. We're not. We're not. But we're here to say that you're the king and we're the subjects. And we stand ready to obey. And so I pray that when you issue commands, I pray that we'd be able to humbly receive them. And I pray that you'd give us the courage, the conviction, the faithfulness, the humility, the love and compassion to obey them. It's not as if you haven't spoken. You have. Help us to receive those. Receive those words and to live them out. In Christ's name, amen.